Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. First of all, we would like to acknowledge Australia's first astronomers, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, the traditional owners and custodians of the land we are on. This episode is produced on Yorta Yorta, Pangarang and Kaerna country. My name is Brendan O'Brien and today is Wednesday, the 1st of February, 2023. We always include a community service announcement asking you to wash your hands regularly, wear a mask if you can't socially distance effectively and isolate as much as possible. And as soon as you can, to protect yourself and your community, get that COVID-19 vaccination as we work our way through this global crisis. We also ask you to influence your local politicians with the message that we need to change our energy policies to move to renewable energy to mitigate climate change. Each month we bring you two fabulous episodes. On the first of each month, you'll get to hear Dr. Ian Astroglob Musgrave bring you his monthly sky guide, an astro treat for naked eye observers, telescopers and astrophotographers. And he always includes a tangent of astronomical wonder. In the middle of each month, we'll give you an interview with a noted astrophysicist, astronomer, astrophotographer, space scientist, or particle physicist. So, let's zoom over to Adelaide now to get your sky guide from Ian. Hello, Ian. Hello, Brendan. Great to be talking with you again, Ian. We're into our eighth year of hearing all about what's up in the sky. And let's get stuck into it right now. And can you tell us, Ian, what's up in the sky for the month of February? Well, the month of February is going to be really interesting. Of course, uh, our long-awaited comet C slash 2023 E3 brackets ZTF, close brackets, uh, enters the evening sky early in February. But we've also got a fair bit of planetary action happening with uh, Venus, Jupiter and Mars, prominent and bright. Saturn's lost in the twilight, and in the morning skies, Mercury begins to leave the morning sky, but in the early part of the month, it's still quite easy to see in the late twilight. Excellent. So once again, I'll start with the moon. So February 6th is the full moon. It's an apogee mini moon. So if you're interested in the perigee uh, super moons, it's a good idea to have a look at this moon and maybe even image it. So when the oldest perigee moons come around, you'll be able to bear the size and see how much the moon has changed from apogee to perigee. The last quarter is February 14th. February 20th is the new moon, so that's very good for looking at clusters and nebula. And February the 27th is the first quarter moon again. Yep. The full moon is an apogee mini moon. Uh, apogee is actually on February the 4th. It's about one day away from the full moon. It's still going to be quite small. And perigee is on the February the 19th. Okay, so we'll start with the evening sky. If you are out at twilight, the first thing you'll see above the western sky half an hour to an hour after sunset is bright Venus. Venus is becoming 
brighter and brighter and easier and easier to see as it climbs out of the twilight. Yep. But because we're still at a lower angle, so it's still not going to get very high over the period of this month, but it's still going to be quite easy to see. Excellent. Interestingly enough, Venus has three close encounters this month. The first one is going to be really difficult to see. On the 15th, Venus and Neptune are just 10 arc minutes apart. That's incredibly close together. And it would be a very interesting telescopic object, except for the fact that it's going to be very low in the twilight and be almost impossible to observe. Theoretically, you could see um, Neptune in a pair of 10 by 50 binoculars, but it's low altitude. That's going to be really, really hard art. You've got a telescope, you'll have to have one which has a very low travel to the horizon in order to be able to pick up Neptune. So it's probably one which most of us are going to miss. Then again, on the 22nd, Venus will be just one degree from the crescent moon. This will look very lovely in the evening dusk. And they'll also fit together quite nicely in binoculars and a wide angle telescope eyepiece. But even just in the unaided eye, the twilight glow is looking really good at the moment. There's some beautiful colours and Venus and the crescent moon with the twilight colours look really nice together. Cool. At the moment, if you're looking at it in a telescope, Venus currently looks like the Gibbous moon, which will be quite nice. Now, Venus and Jupiter have been approaching each other for most of January, and this continues on for February. And on the 28th of February, the pair are just two degrees apart. Mm. This will look very nice in binoculars and potentially quite good in telescopes. Again, this is going to be relatively low to the horizon, and you'll have to catch a borderline between civil twilight and nautical twilight to get a, a, a good view. They're even going to be closer in March when they're going to be just a degree apart. But at the end of February, they're going to make a very fine binocular pair. And again, telescopic observations are going to be, be quite tricky. Now, Mars is well past opposition this month, but it's still prominent. Starting the month, making a triangle with Aldebaran and the Flight Pleiades. But as the month progresses, Mars phase more as it moves uh, back down the horns of Taurus, uh, the bull. And then by the end of the month, uh, Mars forms a triangle with Beta and Zeta Tauri. These are the stars that make the tips of the horn. As Mars fades, it also uh, shrinks in diameter in the telescopic view, but it's still a worthwhile telescopic object for most of this month, although it's not spectacular. And on the 28th, Mars is around three degrees from the waxing moon. Uh, again, it um, makes it very obvious which is Mars by looking at the uh, brightest object next to the moon. Nice. And with big power binoculars, you'll be able to fit the pair in. It'll look, it'll look quite nice. Now, Jupiter is really hard to catch in your telescopes at the moment because it's uh, getting quite low once astronomical twilight kicks in. And it's continuing to lower in the western evening uh, sky, but it will still be obvious for most of the month. And again, on the 22nd and 23rd, Jupiter, the crescent moon, and Venus will make a very pleasing lineup in the twilight. And it's very attractive with two bright planets and the crescent moon. And as I said before, Venus and Jupiter have been approaching each other all month. And on the 28th, they're just two degrees apart. So again, very good to look at and also anticipating the closer approach in March. Yep. Let's move back to the morning sky. 
those of you who are actually physically able to get up or forced to get up early morning, Mercury, which has been relatively prominent at the end of January, begins to fall back to the eastern horizons this month. On the 19th, the thin crescent moon is less than four degrees above Mercury. However, you're going to need a level unobstructed horizon to see the pair at the best, and you may need binoculars to clearly see uh, Mercury at the crescent moon. You'll probably be able to see the crescent moon quite nicely, but Mercury will be a bit more of a challenge. And Saturn, of course, is lost in the twilight, and we won't see Saturn again until it turns up in the morning around mid-March. Yep. And now the star of our show, the Comet C slash 2022 E3 ZTF. The ZTF stands for Zwicky Transient, Zwicky Transient Facility. That's a scanning telescope which is looking for transient objects such as supernova and gamma-ray bursts, but it can also pick up comets. So our comet bunch of numbers and the letters has been described somewhat breathlessly in some media outlets as a rare green comet last seen by the Neanderthals. Now that's kind of, sort of, not entirely true. It's not rare for a comet to be green. Comets which we variously describe as dirty ice balls or icy dirt balls, when they come close to the sun, their ice start to evaporate. And comets not only have water ice, but a whole range of organic ices, such as ethanol and methane. And the ultraviolet light from the sun causes these molecules to break down and form bicarbonate, which yes. is fluorescence green in ultraviolet light. So this is very dim, unfortunately, and the green colours you see in uh, long uh, exposure telescopes are rarely seen by humans unless you've got really, really good colour vision. But you don't want to hear about that. You want to hear about how you can see this. Yes. Now, Northern Australia has the best views with places like Darwin and Cairns and areas around that seeing the comet, potentially seeing the comet best and seeing the comet from about the 3rd of February. Brisbane, Perth and Sydney are likely to be able to see the comet from the 5th and Adelaide and Melbourne have to wait for the 6th and Hobart may have to wait uh, for the seventh. Now, while a comet is theoretically visible to the unaided eye under dark sky conditions when it enters Australian skies, probably around about magnitude 5.4 to 5.8, the fact that it will be very low to the horizon and with the full moon on the horizon on the sixth and uh, the waxing moon earlier will make it very difficult to see it. It will likely to be a binocular-only comet even during the time when it's normally unaided eye. But that doesn't mean it's going to be a bad thing. If you remember Comet C slash 2021 A1 Leonard, which was the Christmas Comet of 2021, that was basically binocular only, but it was a lovely little comet with good binocular features, and it had a, a couple of uh, outbursts, a really significant outburst in late January that produced this nice tail that spanned almost a binocular field. And even in binoculars, you could see detail in the tail. So while it's not certain that that comet C slash 2022E3 will do the same thing, it's nonetheless showing some nice structure in binoculars in the Northern Hemisphere and may very well uh, have some nice features when it turns up in our skies. Cool. So. Another good thing is we've got lots of good guidepost stars. And not only do we have good guidepost stars, but aside from those guide stars, most of the other stars in the field are relatively dim. So the comet will stand out as a 
a fuzzy star amongst uh, a number of dimmer stars. Well, now might be a good time to remind listeners that you put up the charts on Southern Skywatch and on your Astro blog website for people that want to get the guides to find out exactly where the comet is. Indeed. But in general, because you've got these good guide stars, you've got three really good signposts. The bright star Capella, lower middle of the horizon, the bright planet Mars, and the bright red star Aldebaran. So these four form a roughly a line uh, going up at an angle from the horizon. And a comet's going to roughly go along that path. So at any time from the fifth on, if you sweep up from Capella up towards Mars, you should be able to see the comet as a fuzzy star along that track. So, of course, on the fifth, it'll be just below Capella. On the 6th, it'll be uh, within a binocular field of, of uh, Capella, uh, close to uh, another bright star, Epsilon, or again. And then the uh, next night, it's uh, just above that star, uh, next to a bright, a very obvious triangular asterism. And then you go further up, it's uh, near the next brightest star, which is Iota. Then the next stop is between uh, Iota and Mars. Mars, it's very close to Mars, and then up into the high, high 80s, and on the 14th, it passes by Aldebaran. So it's close to Mars on the 11th, close to Aldebaran on the 14th. So even though it may not be visible to the unaided eye, it's going through some interesting territory. There'll be some good uh, chances to see it next to interesting bright objects, uh, and we may see some significant outbursts especially as it gets higher in the sky and we can see it more clearly. Fantastic. So the next couple of weeks are going to be very exciting. Next couple of weeks are going to be very exciting indeed. And, of course, the prominent stars are, of course, Taurus the Bill, which we'll be seeing quite nicely uh, as we follow the kite up towards uh, Taurus. Um, and Orion the Hunter, uh, just above Taurus, is, of course, very prominent, very beautiful. Uh, it's spelt being saucepan in Australia. But of course, if you head south now, the uh, clusters of Carina, just above the Southern Cross, all there for you to look at. So well, once the moon's out of the way and you've finished watching the comet, you can start observing the southern sky and all the magnificent clusters there. Fantastic, Ian. I'm really looking forward to this. So um, while we're at it, do you have a tangent for us, Anne, for February? Indeed, I do. And in fact, in honour of Comet C-2023, I'm revisiting weird units of astronomical measurement, this tangent. Although I'm going to start off with something that's not necessarily a weird unit. But I recently saw on Twitter an average comet contains as much water as has ever been consumed by all humans who have ever lived. Now, that doesn't sound about quite right. Our comets have a lot of water in them, and uh, it's thought that some of the water on Earth was delivered by comets. Yep. But the average comet has around about 10 to the power 13 kilograms of water ice. And a human will apparently consume something like 8.8 I 10 to the power 4 litres of water in their lifetime, assuming they live to, to 80. 
But now it's a lot of people that believed is, of course, a bit of an estimate. But we think it's somewhere between 80 to 150 by uh, 10 to the power 9. So that's you know, roughly a bit, uh, a bit over uh, 10 to 100 billion people. That's a lot of people. Yep. But taking uh, one of the uh, more recent estimates of something like 117 by 10 to the power 9, so 117 billion, that means that all the people who ever lived, assuming they all lived to 80, would consume around about 1 by 10 to the power 16 litres, uh, which is effectively 1 by 10 to the power 16 kilograms. This is obviously a lot more than the average comet of 10 to the power 13 kilograms. And even hale Bot, the largest comet we know of, only had about 3.3 by 10 to the power 14 kilograms. So they'd still consume far more than that. Now, if you assume that the median age is, is still less, and that you're only only drinking uh, somewhat less water. So, for example, if the median lifespan is 50 years, taking into account that lots of people died in childbirth or or early childhood, and but some people lived to 60 or 70. So let's say there's a median lifespan of 50 years, drinking only two litres a day, then that's still a bit over four to the 10 to the power 15 litres of water, which is still much larger than the average uh, comet and still larger than Hale-Bopp. Yep. So although the cometary water is quite impressive, and for example, uh, Comet 67P, uh, water would fill uh, the uh, Hoover Dam in America quite full if you'd already drained the dam in the first place, it's not more than what humans have drunk in, uh, in all of human history. Now, I mentioned the Hoover Dam and uh, the cartoonist Randall Munro of XKCD fame has come up with an imaginative use for the Hoover Dam and commentary water, making a cosmic margarita. So you'll need one 67p-sized comet, 4,000 oil tankers full of tequila, 1,000 oil tankers full of orange liqueur, 1,000 oil tankers full of agave, whatever the heck that is, and the juice from 20 trillion lines. And you all need to mix it. Uh, you melt, melt the uh, comet in the, uh, the now empty Hoover Dam and mix it all, add all the other uh, ingredients and mix it all up in the Hoover Dam in some way. <laughs> of course, the comet contains not only water ice, but as I mentioned before, ethanol and methane, uh, the organic uh, ices which give the comet dicarbon when it breaks down, giving the comet its green glow. Also, ammonia ice, carbon dioxide, and carbon monoxide ices, not to mention complex tarry organics. And these probably give the, your cosmic margarita a little bit of an off flavor. <laughs> so, possibly wouldn't be quite as nice as you could imagine. <laughs> yep. Which, which brings me uh, finally to the tangent that I was going to start off on, which is our nearest astronomical unit, the penguin. You may remember uh, a little while ago, I discussed on one of my tangents weird astronomical units, such as the asteroid, which was half a giraffe wide. <laughs> yeah. But penguins now supersede giraffes. Two recent near-Earth asteroids were described as being 22 penguins wide, based on an emperor penguin being about one metre tall. So in terms of our newest comet, this means that Comet C slash 2022 E3 is 1,000 penguins wide. 
on average, providing, of course, it doesn't have a weird shape like Comet 67P, which is sort of like a rubber duck. Uh, so there you have it, uh, an appropriate measure for an icy object being an emperor penguin and a, uh, a comet that uh, is a thousand penguins wide, which may or may not make a possibly a toxic margarita, is going to be gracing our skies in such a very short time. <laughs> Incredible. What a great way to kick off the year, Ian. Oh, I think so too. There's nothing like a, like a comet and strange animal descriptions to make <laughs> you think about the universe. Indeed. Well, thank you very much, Ian, Astroblog Musgrove. Uh, thank you very much, Brendan, for allowing me to bring these wonderful events to people in the sky. I hope everyone has clear skies at the appropriate time and uh, they'll be able to enjoy some of our cosmic delights with or without margaritas. Excellent. Thanks, Ian. Good night, mate. Good night, mate. Catch you later. And remember, Astrophys is free, ad-free and unsponsored. And in two weeks' time, we'll be bringing you an amazing interview with Dr. Vishal Gajar, who is a project scientist for Breakthrough Listen, the search for extraterrestrial techno-signatures. He's based at UC Berkeley and has developed a novel AI algorithm to interrogate the immense data sets from the world's largest radio telescopes. This interview is pure science and right out of this world. You'll love it. And the team's latest paper has just been published in Nature. So for those who want a sneak preview, it's available at tinyurl.com forward slash technoseeks. Tune in in two weeks and till then, keep looking up. See you then. Radio Wave.